Good morning, everyone. Can I have that first slide? Okay, my mother is here visiting from Chicago. These are the questions you are not allowed to ask her. I want to be very clear. I spent a lot of money to buy her silence today. Don't tempt her. Send her into sin and breach a contract by asking her any. This is not an exhaustive list. This just gives you a feel of the kind of questions you should avoid. Do we have an understanding? McKenzie? All right, I just want to be clear. All right, so um, I want to thank Stephen for the prayer. I want to thank you for the beginning of the Cooper band up here. Um, so um, my uh, topic this morning is that Jesus is God. And I thought of this topic because about two years ago this time, I was visiting a good friend in Atlanta. And this is an absolutely wonderful guy. He's just great. Very stellar career, wonderful character. And in his, he's about four years younger than I am. And when he um, started getting around 55, he realized the need for God in his life. And despite all his success, he started going to church regularly. And so I'm in his beautiful home in Atlanta. Uh, he's a bachelor. And uh, we were talking, and I, and I mentioned, I just said, well, you know, Jesus being God, and I went on, he said, whoa, 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 whoa. What did you just say? I said, what do you mean? He said, did you just say Jesus is God? I said, yes. He said, I've never heard that before. Now, he'd been going to church faithfully for a decade and had never heard that Jesus is God. So he said, where does it say that in scripture? And so for the next hour and a half to two hours, I walked him through scriptures uh, where the Bible proclaimed that Jesus is God. And to my amazement, for most of the verses to which I pointed, he already had them underlined or highlighted. But he had highlighted them in un without understanding what they were saying. So um, I just said, this is a topic that we really need uh, to address. Um, I feel that the Bible is one divine narrative of God's commitment to create a people for himself who will be a bride to his son. That our salvation is a means to an end, and that end is that there would be a worthy bride for his only begotten son. Now, a common mistake about Jesus is that he is a great man, but he is not God. He is a great example, but he is not Savior. And so there are two uh, common misconceptions about Jesus. One is that he never refers to himself as God, but rather he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And the other is that Jesus never claimed to be God. So I want to go through some scriptures, and he, let me tell you my goal. We could spend days studying the declarations of Jesus Christ as God in the Bible. I am not going to do that, obviously. 
But what I want to do is spark your interest so that you will take a fresh look at Scripture if this issue has ever eluded you. If you have thought that Jesus is man but not God, a great example but not Savior, I encourage you, especially through the CBR journals that we use, because they're broken down each day into four sections. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And when you go through those, that quartet of contemplation, in connection with the specific text in CBR that day, more and more you will see the really obvious places where scripture calls Jesus God. Um, so uh, let's look at this phrase, the son of man. Uh, the, the son of man is a deific title, that is a title for God, for the second person of the Trinity. And Jesus refers to himself in the four gospels approximately 80 times as the son of man. I'm going to, however, if we can go to the next slide, if I've done this right. Yes. <laughs> oh, maybe not. Okay. Yeah, I jumped ahead of myself, but that's all right. Um, in the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, it's called, the full title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word revelation, which is singular, not plural, is, uh, means an unveiling, a revealing, a disclosure. And it's kind of a play on words because two things are happening in this revelation, this disclosure of Jesus Christ. One is that Jesus is being revealed in his divine character, in his role as God of the universe, creator and sustainer of life. And so it is the revelation of Jesus as God. It is also the revelation of what will come to pass uh, now that Jesus has been resurrected and reigns in heaven at the right hand of the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. So in Revelation chapter 1, John, one of the apostles in kind of that inner circle, has been banished to a pretty remote island called Patmos because of his witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And while on the Isle of Patmos, he receives this vision, that is, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he hears this incredible sound behind him, and he turns around, and this is what he says if you want to follow along with me. By the way, if you want this, these slides, you can just contact me or Mike Forrest or Chad and we'll send them to you so you don't have to worry about scribbling things down quickly. Um, so here it is, John the Apostle speaking. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, 
and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I live forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, for John, a Jew, deeply familiar with the then Bible, which is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, this revelation of Jesus Christ had a powerful impact on him and must have brought to mind Daniel chapter 7, and that'll be the next slide. Um, now, Daniel is in Babylon. He's one of the great men of uh, the Hebrew faith. He is a prisoner, but also um, a high official in the Babylon government. And during his captivity, he has this vision. And this vision is the origin of the phrase son of man. It is where the deific title is first revealed. So let's read along with me. As I looked, he said, thrones, plural, were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. The Ancient of Days is another name for God. The Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, as I continue to read, please keep in mind the description of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in Revelation chapter 1, which we just read. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And later on, when you go to Revelation chapter 5, there are too many texts to go into. You will see another picture of the prophecy in Daniel about the ancient of days. This son of man has characteristics that can only apply to God. And so I went through the Gospels, and everywhere where Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, I followed the action that he associated with his own title. All right, so in the next slide... Um, and the next one, these are characteristics or qualities of the Son of Man. He forgives sin, which only God can do. And, and in fact, when he heals this uh, man who was, uh, had paralysis in his legs, and instead of saying you're healed, he said, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees were upset that he made the statement because only God can forgive sin. And Jesus said, lest you think that the Son of Man is in error, and which is harder to say, rise up and walk or thy sins be forgiven, he said to the man, now rise up and walk. Only God can do that. Next characteristic. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. So wherever I'm saying this, 
it has been preceded by the Son of Man does something. And he says here, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. That is, the Sabbath is his creation. The Sabbath is set aside so that we can specifically have a day to glorify the God who created us. Next, the Son of Man commands the angels. Next, at the end of time, the Son of Man will sovereignly dispense rewards. Sovereignly means it will be his decision and his the choice as to whom is rewarded and in what manner. Next, the Son of Man will save the lost. Only God can save. Next, the Son of Man shall come in his own glory. Now, this is very important because the scripture tells us that God does not share his glory with another. And anyone who attempts to exalt himself before God will be debased. But Jesus comes in his own glory because he is God. The glory naturally and fully belongs to him. Next, the Son of Man shall sit on the right hand of the power of God the Father. Next, the Son of Man has descended from heaven. And next, the God has appointed to the Son of Man to judge the world. Now, we know from Scripture that all judgment belongs to God. And in fact, one of the famous verses from the Old Testament, God says, you shall not seek revenge because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And, and Jesus has said, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. And the reason that he does that is so the Son may receive the same glory as the Father. That's his own word. That the Son may see the same glory as the Father. So these are the characteristics of the Son of Man as a deific title, underscoring the fact that that phrase, in that phrase, Jesus is saying he is God. Now, Jesus is not called the Son of Man because he came from man. I believe he is called the Son of Man because he became incarnate. He took on flesh and became a man uh, for our sake. Jesus did not take on flesh and enter the womb of this uh, teenage Jewish girl so that he could understand us. Jesus is already omniscient. There is nothing he does not know. He does not have to search things out. He does not have to discern. He does not have to add things up to deduce to arrive at a conclusion. Jesus knows everything. He is the creator of all things. So he came to earth not so that he could know us, but so that we could know God. So that we who are afar off, as one of the songs says, will be brought into his presence. He came so that we would understand, as uh, our friend preached last week, that Jesus identifies with our pain, he saves us from our pain, and he uses our pain to bless others. So his coming to flesh was for our benefit, so that you and I 
would never be able to say to God, you don't understand. You don't get it. You don't know what it's like to be homeless. You don't know what it's like to have people hate you. You don't know what it's like to be misunderstood. You don't know what it's like to be a stranger in your own family. All of those things Jesus lived through simply so he could say to us, I understand. And I want you, Chad, and you, Mackenzie, and you, Barbara, to understand that I understand. Uh, pastor Jerry Andrews is the pastor at First Presbyterian Church up the street. And he describes this birth of Jesus as immensity cloistered in a womb. I just love that phrase. That's what the living God has done for us so that we could be saved. So the next point and the next slide is that all the New Testament writers uniformly believed and taught that Jesus is God, the second person in the Trinity. There is absolute unity of thought and belief on this subject by all the New Testament writers. So in the next slide, in John 1, the opening verses of the great gospel of John are these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Next. Thomas, after the resurrection, was not in the first group to whom Jesus appeared in Jerusalem. And when the disciples, when he joined the disciples and they excitedly told him, we have seen the Lord. He is risen. Thomas said, unless I put my hand in his wounds, I am not going to believe. And it, it, because it was too good to be true. He did not understand that it was too good not to be true. And as soon as he uttered that, Jesus appeared in his midst, and he said, Thomas, put your hand in my wound. And Thomas just fell to his knees, and he said, my Lord and my God. Next slide, Colossians 2.9. Oops, there we go, thank you. These are the words the Apostle Paul, who had been the enemy of Jesus Christ until he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he asked, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecute. Paul, in his ministry, had these words to say about Jesus. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Do you understand how amazing a statement this is? Next, the writer in Hebrews says this long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is a description of Jesus Christ. And then in Revelation chapter 5, I mentioned this at the beginning of my talk, hearkening back to the description of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. This is slightly long, but I want, I, I thought I would abbreviate it, but I said, you know, if, if I don't give the full context, my brothers and sisters might miss the point. So here's John. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And he said, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom, of, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering. Remember Daniel? Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. So you may not remember this incredible sermon. Put your hands over your ears, Steve. I want you to hear this. Incredible sermon Stephen preached about five years ago when we had the Uptown Church. And he described this scene 
that there in the middle of the universe with everything around him, all the angels, all the, the divine creatures, in the center is the Lamb of God, Jesus himself being worshipped by thousands upon thousands upon thousands of divine creatures. Final point. If you go to the next slide. So first we looked at the deific title, the Son of Man. And then we looked at how the New Testament writers uniformly taught and believed that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. And now I want to show in this next part that Jesus claimed to be God and his enemies believed he claimed to be God. Now, they didn't agree with him, but they understood what he was saying. So in John 8, verses 5, John 8, as you see on the screen, Jesus is having this dialogue with some of the Pharisees, and they are disputing his claims. And uh, every good thing he does, they characterize as evil. If he makes a blind man see, it's because he has the power of Beelzebub. If he makes the lame walk, it's because he's under the influence of Satan. They never stop and say, hmm, these are things only God can do. And anyway, so he has this discussion. It says, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you claim to have seen Abraham, who is the father of the Hebrew people. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to, thrown him, to, to stone him, to throw at him. So if you recall back in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses approaches the burning bush and God speaks to him from that bush and gives him the assignment to return to Egypt as God's man to free the Hebrew people from their enslavement under Pharaoh. Moses asked, well, I'm not qualified to go. People are not going to believe me when I say you sent me. I don't even know your name. Who shall I tell them sent me? And God said, I am that I am. So the Hebrew people always understood that the phrase I am referred to the self-existent, eternal, unchanging, self-sustaining God of the universe. So when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, they immediately became furious and took up, took up thrones to throw at him. But it says, he, understanding their motives, moved away. Next slide. Matthew 26. Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, was undergoing one of the seven or six trials. I'm sorry, this should be Matthew 26. Maybe I didn't put it in there. Okay, I'll just read it. My apologies. So Jesus is on trial. There it is. See? Wow. <laughs> and the high priest, who's sort of running this kangaroo court, is tied. They've had all these false witnesses come in, witnesses whose testimony they have purchased, purchased, and none of this is working. It's they're all falling apart. Their stories are inconsistent. And remember, under Hebrew law, you have to have two witnesses confirming the point. And so the high priest stood up and said, "Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you?" But Jesus remained silent because. 
as a lamb before his shearers was dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And the high priest said to him, in frustration, now you have to understand, this is utter frustration. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. Now you have to understand that under the Old Testament, if, you, if the high priest issues an adjuration, I adjure you, it is a command you have to tell, you have to testify in court, and you have to tell the truth. Now, in our system, in our system, in order to get somebody to testify, you had to subpoena them to come to court. And once they're in court and they're sworn in, they have to testify. If they don't testify, they go to jail. They're in contempt of court. That is an adjuration. So Jesus, who was always obedient to the law, now answers. And Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory, clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What need do we have of any further witnesses? Do you understand? He knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. He just thought it was a blasphemous claim. So, my last point. So what? So what? If I heard, uh, I forget, Dana can... Uh, this wonderful pastor who's since gone to be with the Lord, say, you do what you do because you believe what you believe. If Barack Obama says, I think we should bomb Syria, all ears are up, we pay attention. If one of us makes the same statement, we poop hard, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, we have no authority, it doesn't mean anything, and we ignore it. Um, so the message is elevated by the messenger. When Jesus tells us to believe him, that is a command, not a suggestion. We are not to believe in him. Everybody believes in Jesus. I mean, the historical Jesus cannot be denied. But the point is not that we believe in him. I mean, the, the devils believe in Jesus. But do we believe him when he says that he is dying on the cross for our sins? Do we believe him? The reality of salvation is not some gift that Jesus gave so much. He gave himself in order to gain the very people he created. He purchased us from death, even though we already belong to him. He redeemed us, and I don't know about you, but when I came to faith, I was not seeking God. I was running in the opposite direction, and God grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and said, you shall be saved. I don't know about you, but it is the reality of Jesus that makes salvation real. We're talking about a relationship not with an ideology and not with a theology. We're talking about a relationship with the living God. 
it also brings to mind to us not only the reality of judgment, but the real—I mean, the reality of salvation, but the reality of judgment. I know the the image of Jesus in our culture is the shepherd holding the lamb, but and that is a good image and a correct image. But it is also needs to be balanced with the image of Jesus as God in Revelation. He comes the first time in weakness, as Pastor Andrew says immensity cloistered in a womb in a humble stable ignored by most of the people in the world at that, at that time only the angels and a few shepherds and some wise men understood that Messiah has come to earth the whole rest of the world ignored it but when he comes back in glory the second time no matter the time of day, whether the moon is in the sky or the sun, all will see him at the same time. And the Bible tells us that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, for some, the confession will be a matter of horror. It will be screams of fear. And for others, it will be peals of delight. And today, you and I have the choice whether we will confess in terror or confess in joy that Jesus Christ is Lord. The reality of Jesus Christ as God brings to mind the inevitability of this divine narrative that the Father, through the purchase of the Son's bride by the Son's own death on the cross, will have a wedding. And the Bible begins with a wedding, Adam and Eve. Jesus begins his public ministry by performing a miracle at a wedding in Cana. And the Bible ends with this wedding. When Jesus marries his bride, the universal collection of all those who have believed God. And, and, and so that means to me that it is imperative that I live my life in a way that pleases the living God who knows everything about me. And then here's the final point. Because Jesus is God, it means that our new identity is in Christ. This is one of the reasons the gospel was so powerful to slaves in the United States in the 18th, and 19th centuries. It means that though I am hated and abused, I'm hidden with Christ and God. To, to somebody who is struggling out of addiction and, or some other problem, and every now and again, that, that image of your past wells up and seems to bring you back down into a state of depression or self-condemnation, you can't stop that. Because you are now, having received Christ, a new creation. And it doesn't matter if the world continues to see you through old eyes. The fact is that Christ sees you as his own. We are a new creation. And this is a joy that Christmas reminds us of every year. Let's pray.
Father, you are so incredibly merciful that you and your son together with the spirit agreed that the son would voluntarily enter the womb of a Jewish girl and walk this earth in moral purity and perfection and then allow himself to be crucified, laying aside his righteous God to be ill-treated by those who depend on him for life and breath and all things. And he was crucified because of my sins. But he was raised from the grave on the third day, and with him we are raised together into the heavenlies. And we thank you. Amen.